When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hello, hello, nerds. 
This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host of yours, the one who just so fucking pumped to learn literally everything imaginable when it comes to the ancient world. Live. Okay, so today's episode? It's amazing. I'm so excited. It's so ridiculous and wonderful and Herodotus. Well, he is Herodotus. Whew. Where would we be without him? It isn't a stretch to say that the modern Western world would be incredibly different if we didn't have Herodotus, if so many early notions of ancient history hadn't been based on his writings, for good or bad. He was influential, to say the absolute least. And of course, as some of you may have already noticed, I also use this episode to take the opportunity to, well, to quote Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Because Herodotus. But also because I connected with today's guest, Kate Maniti, via AC Odyssey. We did a stream together for the Save Ancient Studies Alliance, and it was so much fun that the moment Kate suggested that she could come on and talk not only Herodotus, but Herodotus in Egypt, oh man. I'd also known Kate from Twitter for a long time, but honestly just knew her as the person with the profile image that is just that incredible Fayum-style portrait of Cassandra from Odyssey. But needless to say, it's a memorable profile picture. Kate actually studies Egyptology too, which is supremely cool. I've said this before, and I'm about to say it again in the conversation, but the only real mythology that I think I could branch, could and probably will branch out onto on this show would be Egyptian. Because Egyptian was my first love in so many ways, and I just find it so fascinating. But it also just has these incredible overlapping moments with Greece in a way that is just super interesting. Enter Herodotus. Herodotus as a historian is not something I'll wade into. I don't know enough, and I know it's controversial to suggest one way or the other. But he was influential and important, regardless of how accurate he may or may not have been. And he was interested. That's what I love. He was genuinely interested. He wanted to learn about the world around him. He wanted to travel and talk to people and write down what he heard. That alone is so vital and provides us with such insights into the ancient world, accurate or otherwise. His time, or perhaps no time at all, in Egypt is the perfect example of this. And Kate shares so much about Herodotus's writings about Egypt and how they compare to actual Egyptian history and mythology. I learned so much about not only Herodotus's writings, but Egypt too. Ugh. Plus, there are some truly hilarious moments. I, I just had such fun listening through to this to edit it again. I really, I can't wait for y'all to hear it. So on that note... Conversations. There's much to do and many unknowns on the horizon. Herodotus in Egypt with Kate Maniti. I'm like, I'm I'm a jack of all trades. Like Herodotus is not the topic of my dissertation, but I'm like. I have classics and I have Egyptology and I have uh, classical archaeology. So I'm like, and I've been dealing with Herodotus since high school. We met in high school. 
I mean, I don't, I literally only have a BA, but I can talk about mythology to the ends of the earth. So it's really all about like the thing you can talk about a lot, right? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'm always here for the slander. Right? Oh my God. Yeah, no, I'm ready for it. I don't know enough about like, because I don't really focus on history much. So, but I, the really like I get that aspect when I'm talking to people like you. So it's very fun for me. Yeah, so let's just dive right into Herodotus then. Why don't we just kind of start this off? I'm just going to let my listeners know how this started, this conversation, which was purely a matter of we did a stream of Assassin's Creed Odyssey (laughs) where Kate was playing. And then uh, that always leads to talk of Herodotus. And then I think you just vaguely were like, I can talk Herodotus in Egypt. And I was like, please, let's do that. Because all of my knowledge of Herodotus is based on Assassin's Creed Odyssey which while I think that's perfectly fine, it is definitely not uh, historically accurate in any way, much like Herodotus himself, as I've gathered. So it kind of suits. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's that kind of guy. Uh, yeah, I, I basically uh, slid into the DMs and say, hey, do you want to talk Herodotus and Egypt? Uh, and the answer was a resounding yes. There was enthusiastic consent. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any reason for me to have, like, opportunity to bring up Odyssey in a conversation as well, because uh, as my listeners have learned by this point, like, I did not play video games other than N64 uh, until I bought a PS4 specifically to learn to play Odyssey. It remains basically the only game that I play. I've played, like, a bunch of Origins. I'll go through, like, a period where I'll play some Origins, because at least it's ancient Egypt. (laughs) And so I'm like, I can still get my fix of the ancient world. But then I get frustrated with the gameplay, and I just go back to playing Odyssey, which I've played through, like, five times now, because I have a problem. Yeah, that works. I'm I'm replaying (laughs) Origins several times. When I want to relax, I just fire up Origins. That's exactly me with Odyssey because I just know the gameplay so perfectly that it's easy. But then the origins, like if I, because I learned on Odyssey, Odyssey's a little bit fancier. So I always get frustrated with what you can and can't do in Origins. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Bayek, he's only a man. Oh, um, it's just so much more tricky. But I know, I know. So sorry, we just no, we just, no. Well, I mean, I, again, I could do it. I can do it anytime. Listen, what digressions are very Herodotian, so I think we are very on topic here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Herodotus in general is so interesting. Like the very idea of him, I've I've covered very briefly. Um, like I think it was just like two bits of story from the histories and the podcast, which I did. Like I don't even know. It was like at least three years ago now. Um, but I know it was like. Was is it Artemisia? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and another woman that he talks about whose name I've completely forgotten. But basically, I was like, "Well, I found cool stories of women in Herodotus. I'm going to cover them," and that's like all I've ever done. But Egypt was my first love as like just mythology and history general, generally like long before I really got into to Greek mythology. So I'm excited to hear what on earth that man did down there and what on earth he came back saying. <laughs> Yeah, so so maybe we can start from like the very beginning, like he does, and um, and introduce Herodotus to uh, listeners who may not be idea. you know familiar <laughs> with him. Uh, so Herodotus is, apart from being a character in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, he was a historian, uh, self-proclaimed historian. He was born in Halicarnassus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he was a Persian subject. He was not. A member of like any Greek polis because at that point uh, Persia had uh, ruled over Anatolia 
and he is uh, the mm, the scion of a tradition of people trying to make history and trying to write <laughs> about history uh, with you know uh, different outcomes. And he tries very hard to. So his his goal is to write, and he says this like at the very beginning of his of his book, which is well, it's titled by the Alexandrine scholars who then reorganize it and divide it and everything. As you know, Alexandrine scholars, they reorganized everything. They had issues. <laughs> he says he wants to tell the story of how Greece and Persia came to blow. And he takes it very, very, you know, uh, large. And so he takes it from very far. And he starts with uh, he, mm, mythological women being kidnapped between Africa and, and Europe, uh, between Asia and Europe, actually. Uh, and so he talks about Ayo and he talks about Europa. And then he talks about uh, Thebes and the foundation of Thebes and your boy Cadmus. Um, <laughs> and he, <laughs> he tries to give this very large over, you know, overarching arc of history in which everything has brought to the point of the Persian Wars, uh, which he had not seen in person. He would have been a baby, maybe, when the, fir- when the second one happened. But he tells us that he had interviewed people that had been in the wars or that he knew people who knew people who were in the wars. And so he's trying to build this sort of big project uh, to explain why this animosity had, you know, uh, had developed between the two, uh, the two empires, although Greece is not an empire, should have not used that word, but, you know, he's <laughs> trying, that, that is his goal. And in this, in this, in his work, he tries um, to also describe the personal empire. And the way in which he does is he does these giant digressions in which he's talking about things that are in the Persian Empire, uh, but not necessarily related to the Persian Wars, and Egypt is one of them. So it is very easy to take book two, uh, the part of book two that is about Egypt as a a nice, fun, you know, historical experiment about describing Egypt or like uh, its ethnography or anthropological studies and everything else, but it's actually still part of Herodotus' agenda of describing the Persian Empire and then explain why they started the Persian Wars. Wow, I didn't take a single breath in all of that. <laughs> I know that feeling well. I li- just love the idea of uh, like their intentions behind everything, you know, and like what that really does end up saying about what the actual writing is. And then so mm-hmm. often that gets kind of forgotten when people are reading it now because it's been 2,500 years. And so it's like you you often just read what they're writing, you know, at face value. Uh, I've encountered exactly. this primarily in, in Plato talking about Atlantis and just the the way I can't seem to fully get through to, to some people the, the idea that like, no, but all of it is a lie. So you can't you can't question any of it. So somebody recently like uh, gave me a review where they kind of asked a question about Atlantis, which is not an easy way to respond to anything. Uh, but they were basically like, well, but like, but Solon talked to people or something. And I was like, no, you, you you're if by like believing that Solon talked to Egyptians about Atlantis, you are inherently ignoring the primary point, which is that like, there's literally no evidence that the person talking about Solon had any contact with Solon or maybe was even real at all. Exactly. Or that Solon ever actually went to Egypt. Which, exactly. You know, yeah. Fight you about. <laughs> Let alone like talk to somebody later who talked to somebody who then talked to Plato or not Plato, who talked to Socrates, who then talked to Plato. No. Anyway, no, no, no. <laughs> that's all I can think about when I hear this talk of, of like, you know, the, the reasons why I think Herodotus was writing. Um, so but 
the Egypt, and now this is me completely having no grasp on on the history, which I really should have a better one. But was Egypt taken over by the Persians? Yes, it had been taken over in plot twist in 525 (laughs) BC. Um, It had been taken over. Uh, The last pharaoh of Egypt was a a really sad affair. Um, Not him, but like what happened to him because he was taken and uh, deported as an enslaved person, which is a very sad way of, you know, ending a glorious mm-hmm. tradition of everything. But he is also... So we, we don't really know what happens to him. Yeah, so um, so Egypt is under recommended rule. Um, they absolutely hate it. We are told in non-certain terms by Egyptian sources and other sources um, that they did not like the Persians. And Herodotus makes a point in telling us about how Cambyses, who was the uh, the Persian king who had conquered Egypt, was a terrible man. Um, he killed the Apis bull. He disrespected all the gods. He looted, you know, temples and everything else. There's really no record of this in Egyptian sources, which is, on the one hand, if anything horrible had befallen them, maybe we, have, we would have no record because Egyptians tended to, let's just say, um, glide over things that were not proper properly favorable to them. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, there's really no record of this. And it would not make sense because this is one of the things that happened with Egypt. And we see that with Alexander and the Romans too. You go there, you need to adapt. So you take um, an Egyptian name or, you know, the Egyptian transliteration of your name and uh, you are represented according to Egyptian uh, art canons and you do all the things that you need to do. So it's not like the Persians rolled in and decided, no, this is, you know, this is Persian territory now. So we're doing everything according to Persian customs, which is something that they don't do to begin with. The Achaemenid Empire leaves relative freedom to people to worship and do as they as they will, as long as they pay taxes and give troops to the empire. And this also, I know, thanks to another podcast, which is the History of Persia podcast. <laughs> that is the source of my knowledge of the Achaemenid Empire. Amazing. Now I know um, what to listen to. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's riveting. Uh, but yes, Egypt is not um, rule. Like, it's not its own empire anymore. It is not as great as it was, uh, let's say, a thousand years before. It is diminished somehow. It has been like there has been like a resurgence period right before the Achaemenid conquest. Uh, the 26th uh, dynasty with the capital in Sais, which is in the Delta, has reconquered Egypt done great things. They've done a great PR work around the Mediterranean in trying to establish themselves again as like an international superpower. Uh, they trade, they uh, they send donations, fantastic donations to Greek sanctuaries and international sanctuaries. And among which, you know, uh, and among these kings, there's like Amazis, who is in Herodotus. They uh, start making, like they start producing art that is like reminiscent of the art of the great kings of the previous dynasties. They make scarabs with the cartouches of great kings of the past, which maybe is a way of saying, look, we are here now, so we're going to be just as good as them. At the end, it doesn't really work out, but it is a good period. And this is also the one on which Herodotus has like the strongest grasp Hmm. because it had just happened. Anything before that, let's just say it's um, mm, a slightly less historically um, accurate. <laughs> let's put it this way. 
I'm excited to hear some of the wild things he said too, because I feel like that's what I tend to hear most about Herodotus is like the absurd stuff he says. Yeah. So at the beginning, he states um, his methodology. He's really trying to be as accurate as he can and as uh, methodical as Mm -hmm. he can. So he says, oh, so my methodology is very fine things. And I am going to use hearsay from the Egyptian priests themselves or from other Egyptians, or from other Greeks that live in Egypt, but I'm also going to use the literary tradition, the Greek literary tradition. So he's going to use, of course, Homer, because Homer Mm -hmm. talks about Egypt. And he's going to use Anaximander and Hecateus of Miletus, which were his direct predecessors in writing histories about Egypt. Um, Hecateus of Miletus had been to Egypt and he had been made fun of by the Egyptian priests who were taking no prisoners. Um, and Herodotus also makes fun of him for having been made fun of by the Egyptian priests. <laughs> and he's, he's trying, he's trying to be rigorous in his scholarship. The problem is that his scholarship has a purpose. It's, he's not writing an ethnographic treaty for the sake of it. He is writing because he wants to verify Greek traditions. Uh, so probably he's asking leading questions to the mm-hmm. priests. He's also writing to illustrate um, and confirm like uh, the Greek moral universe in which he's saying his, his tales, he's spinning his tale and how the world works, which is how the Greeks want it to work. And many motivations and characters are a little too conveniently consistent with his themes. So there's some, you know. Uh, So his methodology is like very clear, very open. But the goal behind it is, you know, an agenda, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah. So if he's like born in Halicarnassus, traveling to Egypt for all of this, like where does he, do we know where he gets this desire to emulate the Greeks so specifically? Like well, he- so the, that part of the Persian empire had been Greek before it was Persian. Oh, okay. Because so that's like the one Hellenized. that starts the Ionian. Yeah. Yeah. So the Ionian revolt is there. Well, if it had been Hellenized before and then he can, and then they were Persians and then he's growing up in this world that's, Hellenized, but is Persian, like that makes sense where that kind of background is coming from. And yeah, that, that, yeah, that makes sense. He's also, he's also writing in Greek and Greek is his first language. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's just a very Greek place for being under the Persian empire at that time. I get it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But the problem of the language also opens up several questions about how he's interviewing Egyptians. Yeah. Because (laughs) there's no, there's the reason for the Egyptian priest to be speaking Greek. Especially not the Egyptian priests in like, you know, down down in the country. So they may have used uh, interpreters. And I mean, God knows what, what they understood, what they told each other. You know, it's it's always a matter. And in some, in some places you can, like he says, oh, this is what I understood from what the, the priests were, were telling me. So, you know, there's, there's some concerns there about things getting lost in translation. As a bilingual person, I would, you know, I know that sometimes you want to say A and then B comes out and it sounds weird. <laughs> so the, the bigger thing that he is doing with his Egyptian logos, uh, which is Egyptian, you know, um, books, is trying to prove that many of the things that the Greeks have come from Egypt. Hmm. Because Egypt, as as we know, was considered was held in very high regard from the Greeks 
because it was a very ancient civilization, they were revered as doctors, uh, priests, magicians, slightly orientalistic. I mean, I hear, you know, Edward Said rolling in his tomb. But, you know, uh, they, were, they were held in very, in very high regard. So Herodotus is trying to, um, to prove that, like, many things that the Greeks were doing well uh, are coming from Egypt, including the gods, mm. which is one big thing, because sometimes when people read book two, he's using the Greek names of the uh, like the Greek names of gods to indicate Egyptian gods, but that's not because he's trying to make it easier for his readers. He's actually saying these are the same gods. Interesting. That that's so interesting, and it's funny because I like I fairly recently covered Memnon and and then just generally like uh, myths uh, from Greece that were about Africa, and just. Mm-hmm. The way that specifically with Egypt, you can tell in so much of Greek mythology that they wanted to connect themselves with this incredible civilization that was so much older than them. And, you know, and I think I used what I think is a good example in that episode of just imagining being a Greek in that time and you go somewhere and the pyramids are so much older than you. And like imagining exploring a place where like you barely have like you've got your temples, but you know, if you're talking really early in Greece, the temples are nothing compared to the pyramids. And you're seeing this place and you're like, oh my God, like holy shit, who are these people? Like, well, if Greeks are anything, we must have have some connection to them. So I just always love to make Io, right? Like Io goes down and she travels all around and then she has a family down there and then they go back up to Greece. And you're like, okay, well, that's your way of saying. Not only are the Egyptians more ancient and impressive, but they were Greek first. (laughs) Yes. The Egyptians are actually Greek. And like, (laughs) oh, I just love the way they kind of bend over backwards to to have that kind of like impressive backstory. Yeah, he's really, really trying. Um, And this and with the gods, it's fantastic because like the the lengths to which he goes to try to fit several Greek gods onto like to map them onto Egyptian gods sometimes it's it doesn't quite work no their gods are so different <laughs> yeah he has he has a list of like oh well a moon is zeus and like okay well he's technically the head of the pantheon but a moon is not a sky god he's the hidden one he's like the god you're like okay well that's that's fair and like a moon has the the ram horns and zeus sometimes has the ram horns okay i can see that Hathor and Aphrodite, that's okay. You know, fertility goddesses, sex, drugs, um, you know, happiness, music. Okay, that I can see that. Uh, then when you get to like, oh, um, Neith is Athena. It's like, yes, a, a warrior goddess, that's fair. But Neith is not a goddess of crafts. She's mm. really like a warrior. Mm, mm, questionable. Rise, Helios, that's fine. You know, the sun god and everything else. And then you get like, oh, Isis is Demeter. No. no 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 yeah i don't see that (laughs) That, no that that's that doesn't that doesn't really work and like nothing against demeter like isis is the great of magic she's like the like one of the most powerful if not the most powerful uh egyptian goddess she knows the secret name of ra she can control him because she knows the secret name and demeter is really not that no she's important but in her own way of like right and the similarity is from is from the story of like Isis going around the earth to try and gather the pieces of her mm. husband, which fair Demeter does that, to, but just to find to find her daughter. Uh, but then he conveniently ignores the rest of the story and the rest of the rest of what Isis is. 
and the fact that her child is not a daughter but like a son so it's 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 it gets complicated even like osiris and dionysus yes um, osiris gets killed and then he's kind of reborn but he's still a mummy and he's still in the underworld he's the ruler of the underworld so by those standards he should be hades but he's not that is yeah see, see what i'm getting at it's, it's yeah. complicated osiris as dionysus <laughs> is like i don't get that at all just egypt is so interesting because they're you can make other like obviously there's a lot of connections between gods across the mediterranean but it is harder to map them onto egypt than it is even to map like phoenician gods and like an assyrian gods onto greek like they fit better than the egyptian ones do at least in my limited knowledge but you they know do. like and yeah and the other issue with egypt is that like every province or city has its own very specific gods there are mm. so many there are so many and sometimes he takes a very specific god from like a smaller province and makes it into you know a larger one and that doesn't really work or he takes a goddess that is relatively important because she's one of the of the two ladies that signify uh, egypt like she's the, the goddess wajet and she's a snake and he says oh yeah she's leto and uh, why how yeah. how did you get there how did that you know how did that happen and of course he tries to fit in greek mythological figures and heroes but he has right. to kind of make them into gods so he has oh clearly <laughs> epaphos who is the the son of ios clearly the apis bull which was a relatively new cult in egypt at the time uh relatively new like a millennium uh so you know relatively new in egyptian <laughs> in egyptian yeah no other culture <laughs> yeah. in egyptian times um or he's trying to say that heracles is clearly Egyptian and he's uh, the god Khonsu, but Khonsu is a, a lunar god. And yes, he's, he's a warrior, but he's mostly a lunar god and he's a god. He's not a hero. So he's, he's, trying, he's trying to make this, or uh, Perseus, um, he says, oh, he's the, probably the god of Akmin, uh, but the god Min is clearly not Perseus. Um, he, he, I, I was about to say something vulgar. Um, I'll say this <laughs> and then we'll cut it. He has something long and jutting and it's not a sword. <laughs> um, he's an antiphalic god <laughs> so he's trying to make these things but he want he really wants to make this connection and to cram in the homeric tradition into right. the chronology of mythology of egypt yeah do you want me to cut that out it was a good joke <laughs> we'll think about it <laughs> there's way worse on my podcast that's all <laughs> surely surely <laughs> <laughs> no, Min is, is a is a very etiphallic fertility god, and mm. um, when the Christians were trying to erase uh, some of the gods, or at least the worst parts of the gods, they chiseled out just his erect penis. But now it's even more visible on the wall on the temple walls because that's the only part that chiseled out is like right. You, <laughs> that is not the win you thought it would be. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, it backfired somehow. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so no back to back to homer so he's trying to put in um the homeric tradition into egyptian history so he's taking literary figures and trying to make them into real figures which is not unusual but it's uh, it's not as graceful because he's trying to work out the egyptian chronology following the literary tradition that gives dates for the trojan war and so he crams in um what's the name uh, proteus in between kings because he's like well this is when we know 
the Trojan War took place. So clearly, this is where this king would have fit in Egyptian history, which is not how history works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, it's just that sort of, I suppose it kind of almost fits with like the notions generally behind like pseudo archaeology you're like i have this point i want to prove it so i'm going to take my preconceived point and i'm going to nestle nestle it in to actual history and just decide that it fits there because i want it to <laughs> yes yes he's he, he's he's really trying and like he he makes like a really good like solid reasoning with chronology the problem is that the chronology is off Right. There's no chronology because Proteus never existed. Uh, and he's cramming it in there with, with real people. So that's, uh, you know, that's that's kind of an issue. Any chronology based on the Trojan War is going to have an issue. <laughs> it's several, several. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but he's trying, and he's trying to identify, you know, where Menelaus and his people uh, landed and where, uh, you know, where Paris and Helen landed. But this is also interesting because Euripides has not written Helen uh, mm, yet right so this was this must have been an earlier tradition that he somehow caught you know and tried to work it into his uh, uh digression about egypt which is very interesting probably i i don't know if it was because he just wanted you know to prove once more that egypt was connected to greece or if he just thought that was cool and that proteus needed to be an Egyptian pharaoh, and he had to put it into the the list of kings. One also has to wonder if his question, because for anything that he says, like, oh, and the priest told me this and that. So one has to wonder if he literally asked the priest, oh, do you know of this tradition? And they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. Right. And he, he's like, it's proof. It's true. <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely true. And they were like, yes, sure, sure. It is, it is 100%. Mm-hmm. Yes, excellent. <laughs> But he's 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 fine, and he's trying. So the division of the book, because I realize now that like I'm talking about this book, like everyone knows how it's divided. It's mm. okay. So let me go back. <laughs> so the first part, he's talking about uh, ethnography, anthropology, religion, daily life, social classes, all sort of things. And then the second part, he is getting straight into history and chronology. Getting it wrong. <laughs> for some ways like the the main periods in which egyptologists divide the history of egypt is there but he um he misses the pyramids builders by like i don't know a few millennia um <laughs> somehow <laughs> you know easy to overlook sure yeah <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> and then he's he's much better at history that was like a century old than than anything before that but he's his observations about the country are fantastic and wild. The, the the thing that always struck me the most, and actually the first thing we translated in high school about Herodotus is when he says, oh, Egyptian men and women behave completely opposite to how Greek men and women behave. And then he proceeds to list um, a lot of things that somehow are absolutely contradicted by art history um, <laughs> and archaeology and what we know. He's... He has ideas. Uh, he says, oh, you know, uh, the man, like everyone relieves themselves um, inside instead of outside, which, okay, fair. I mean, they had chamber pots and everything else. That's okay. Women uh, pee while standing and men crouch. You're like, first of all, why did you feel the need <laughs> like, <why>? to, <laughs> to, to include this? Um, second of all, okay. 
uh, then he talks about, you know, how they, how they carry weight when they go to the market um, and he misses. Um, then he talks about using the loom. Certainly true for his period, but it was not always the case. He's making a lot of weird claims that are easily disputed by simply looking at the art or reading texts. Uh, he's, he has ideas. Um, he tries to put in like um, some, for instance, um, some taboos about food, but he gets them. So he gets the taboo right, but for the wrong reasons. Uh, so he's like, oh, they don't eat um, fava beans because like in the Pythagorean doctrine, they are impure and that's actually not true. Uh, they, I mean, one of the commentaries says, oh, fava beans that were probably considered impure, not because of the Pythagorean um, doctrine, but because they, they cause gas. And so you don't want to eat them, especially if you're a priest and you have to present yourself to the God every day, which makes sense. <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to, you know. Um, pass gas in front of your god he is absolutely spot on on the fact that there are many 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 animals being worshipped he gets that right uh what he gets absolutely wrong is the description of several animals um (laughs) so let's 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 get into that so he he talks about crocodiles uh, and he says oh they're giant lizards okay fair enough uh they're big reptiles they're they're evil and mean and they get uh you know they get hunted by hanging like an animal on the prove of a boat and then you catch the crocodile and that's what i mean you wouldn't really want to catch a crocodile but we have representations of people hunting crocodiles uh for that so that works then he goes into hippos and i i i don't know i don't know um (laughs) he, he describes something that has hooves a snout like a horse a mane fangs a tail and makes the sounds of a horse. I've got so many questions. I've I've many questions. We know that he takes this description from Hecateus of Miletus, who clearly had never seen a hippo in his life. Mm-hmm. However, first of all, hippos were there at the time. Like in Egypt, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. And they were, yeah. you know, even if you are very cautious and you don't want to go meet a hippo in person, which is advisable because hippos are the devil, as we know from many streams of Assassin's Creed origins, <laughs> they are very common in art because the hippo is an animal of the god Set, which is the god of, let's, let's say the god of chaos, but, you know, several caveats and, and asterisks mm. there. Um, but also female hippos are um, the incarnation of the goddess Tauret, who is a protectress of pregnant women. So she is a standing pregnant hippo with a wig and knives who protects pregnant women. Well, that's incredible. So the question is, how did he never see the representation of a hippo? Or maybe he saw it and made the connection but didn't have the right word for it? Yeah. Well, and my initial thought was like something around the word itself, which is one of my favorite ancient Greek two English words of river horse Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe it's like more like he's because it sounds like what he's describing is more like a river horse versus an actual hippopotamus right so but then maybe he saw like the representation of these chunky units of animals and did not ask what they were yeah Uh, did not make the connection it is it is somewhat somewhat weird um and some people also say that he has never, like, he, he never actually went to Egypt. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why he gets so many things wrong. But I think he gets so many of them right. If, you know, by his weird interpretation that I don't see why not. I mean, he does get right the snakes. He says that there are vipers with horns. Very true. I mean, they don't have horns. They're like little, little things on their heads. Oh, but in yeah. writing, they actually have little horns. Uh, he talks about um, winged serpents, which is another favorite. Uh, <laughs> flying serpents with wings. And um, many possible explanations for this one. <laughs> uh, there are winged serpents in art, which is fair. Uh, cobras have the, the hood that they flare. Right. And I've learned, uh, to my horror, that oh some, some serpents actually jump. They fling themselves. So no. probably, <laughs> probably that. Uh, you know, is uh, he, that he got right. Um, he has a whole thing about some weird fishes. <laughs> Once again, why Herodotus, why? He says, oh, these fishes eat, uh, eat the eggs, and so they try to kill each other. He observes something that happens, but it's not what he thinks. He thinks that the, the male fishes are eating the eggs and then trying to kill the babies. When actually for this type of fish, and I went into a horrible Google dive, <laughs> the, the eggs actually end up in the mouth of the female and they just, you know, stay there until they hatch. So he's, he observed something and got it wrong. Right. Can't hold it against him. I just love the curiosity <sighs> inherent in all of this where somebody's and I I mean, I'm sure it's just also like a matter of existing in the ancient world versus now when we have so many answers. But mm-hmm. like, I just want that curiosity of like, going around and looking at things and being like, why does this happen? Like, why does that fish have eggs in its mouth? Why is this serpent yes. flying? Like, I just love that idea. It's so precious. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's, he's, he really like, and some of these touches are like, true enough to like, make me think that he really went and observed. Um, mm. I, I have to wonder what the Egyptian thought about him. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> he might have been around asking weird questions, and asking leading questions. So they might have been like, yeah, sure, whatever, whatever you say. But he seems he's very curious. He's always asking why. And he's always trying to offer an explanation for things. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. 
Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes he sees, here's the problem. So his sources are not historians, right? The Egyptian priests do not make history. They mm-hmm. record whatever it is that they need to record for theological reasons or for propaganda. And so many times the explanations that he gives are either theological explanations or straight up Egyptian propaganda that he's eating up and he doesn't even realize. <laughs> so when he talks about the, the phoenix, uh, that's a theological thing. The phoenix is the Bennu bird and he's Osiris, mm. but he looks like a real bird that lives in Egypt. So he's not catching the theological part of the bird and he's taking it at face value. So it's, oh, you clearly have a bird that actually is born, you know, is reborn from his ashes. Or, uh, you know, when, when he talks about um, animal worship, he gets many, many things right, uh, but other he gets wrong. When he talks about the Apis bull, he's saying, oh, the, the priests are uh, checking out these, these animals that they want to sacrifice because they need to, they need to be pure enough. And actually, no, they're probably checking that they're not sacrificing a bull that could be the incarnation of the Apis. So he's observing stuff, but he's really missing the religious the religious substratum of many things that he's seeing or or misses it like he he talks about um dying by crocodile or drowning and he says oh the people who are um who are eaten by crocodiles and or drown are made into um into gods and that's that's not how it works right 
how it works is that in the uh, 10th hour of the night, uh, the god Horus goes down to the underworld and lifts up the people who, are, who have drowned or have been eaten by crocodiles to bring them to the afterlife because they haven't had the proper burial. Mm. So he's not getting it completely wrong, but he's still missing something, which is infuriating, but also very endearing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's it just probably also all comes down to, like, if he did go to Egypt, then his biggest issue was that he didn't speak Egyptian. So he didn't get to right. ask the follow-up questions, right? Like, he had one or two questions, and then he based all of his studies off of that versus like actually asking multiple questions and getting more details. Like, you know, I mean, it sounds like it would be pretty easy to sort out like, oh, you mean not all of these birds are born from their ashes? It's just Mm -hmm. this one story and it looks like this actual bird or, or yeah, like, wait, wouldn't that make for a lot of gods if everyone who drowned or was eaten by a crocodile ended up a god? Like, I think I'm missing something here. Why don't I drill down and get some details? Exactly, exactly. But like for some things, he's um, he's really not not catching. Um, or like when when he talks about religion, he misses completely how it is practiced. He talks about, you know, big concepts and everything else. He has a vague idea of what the Egyptian pantheon, one of the Egyptian pantheon looks like. And he tries to make several of the gods into the 12 Olympians. But these are like the eight gods of one particular province Mm -hmm. to which he adds three because, well, four, because he has to get to 12. (laughs) But that's not for all of Egypt. So he's, he's missing out. uh, He's missing out on, on some things. And he has zero awareness of, like, why the rituals are performed the way they are. So, for instance, mummification, right? For, Mm. like, if you open any book about mummification, you will find a lot of his writing and uh, and then uh, the Dorosiculus about mummification. But that's not how... That's, it's not that simple because it says, oh, there are three tiers of mummification. The first one is, you know, you make a cut and then you remove this and that and then you clean it, you know, cut it, sew it back on and wrap the person and then off you go. And then the second one, you just, this is going to get really gross. Um, Please, I love mummification. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I could say the same. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get mummified, but it's also interesting. It is. It is interesting. I might have seen the movie The Mummy like a comfortable 200 times since it came out. So. Not the new one, I hope. No, God's no. Oh, okay. Thank no, you. No, no. 1999. Lord. I'm sure I yes. watched it on day one and I've been watching it ever since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a great classic, which it's has more accurate things than you would expect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a fan. Um, Good. So he says, wait, what? Oh, yeah. The, the second one is you basically... Ooh, how to say? Um, you inject a, a, a substance inside the person, and then you um, you plug them, and then you wait, and then when you uh, pull the plug, uh, all the insides come out. <laughs> I, I really don't have. I, I don't think my English is good enough to express this. <laughs> you know, more refined I mean, that matter. Was, that was pretty good. That's pretty disgusting. And the third one. Uh, yeah, and the third one, you um, you get like maybe a, a sheet, like a, a shroud, and then you get yeeted into the desert um, in in a hole, and the <laughs> desert preserves you. He's making it very simple. He's also <laughs> making it um, unnecessarily, you know, uh, tiered. 
Yeah. Uh, we know that not everyone who was rich was mummified the same way. We know that the techniques changed uh, toward, you know, in different time periods. He doesn't seem to really understand why the bodies need to be preserved, which is once again him not understanding the theological part because uh, the body and, and that's that's oh my, that's uh, related to another big thing that he really, really misses. He says that the Egyptians are the inventors of the theory of uh, metempsychosis, which is reincarnation. Mm. No, absolutely wrong. <laughs> like this, th- that's probably like the biggest mishap, more than displacing the pyramids by like several millennia, because that's, I mean, you can kind of understand why I'll get to that. But like with, with the reincarnation, he says, oh, the Egyptians invented metempsychosis. I was like, no, there's nothing more wrong for Egyptian doctrine because you have um, five, there are five parts to a person. There's the name, there's the body, there's the spirit, there's the, what we can call vital force, and then there's the magic. Mm. And you are complete if all of those survive in this life and the next one, which is why you need the body to be preserved. And you want your name to be preserved, which is why you write your name on fucking everything and, you know, outside of your tomb. And that's why when someone needs to be erased because they've done something unspeakable, you erase their name. So you really hope that they will be annihilated in in the afterlife and they will not survive. And Herodotus completely misses that. But like, and also with this conception of, only having like one, let's say one life, you understand that metempsychosis is not possible because you can't reincarnate. You are one and that's all there is. Yeah. Right? That's so interesting. I didn't know any of that about Egypt. So now I'm just taking that all in. Um, (laughs) Do I have reading recommendations? I love it. No, I've been, I mean, if I'm ever going to move on from Greek broadly in the podcast, it's going to be into Egyptian because it's the only other one I really care about. Um, but I like basically haven't learned more about it since I was young, (laughs) but that's, that's so lovely. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that it's all about everything else can survive, but you have to keep the body Mm -hmm. like, yes. Yeah. Yes. You really, you really need to. And it's, and that's also why the body's protected. And if you have some missing parts from a certain period onwards, you get a substitute, let's say. Hmm. So when when certain parts are missing, if you're very rich, you can get like a, a gold replica of them. If not, you can use wood or other stuff. And also the whole body is covered in amulets and they're very speci- specialized. Mm-hmm. So you have one for the heart. You have um, some for, you know, the limbs and one to give you a voice and one to preserve your spirit. It's like it's a whole process. It's not just cutting someone, getting the things out, you know, closing them and then... And then off they go. Uh, it has it has a ritual. I, I can't believe I'm saying this word. It has a ritual meaning <laughs> uh, that he kind of he does he doesn't get it. Yeah. Well, it would be hard because when you come from a world that is so completely different, mm-hmm. like the really the Mediterranean has a lot of similarities, except Egypt stands out in a lot of really interesting ways, like mummification and everything to do with that but yeah if you're if you're not in a position to like wrap your head around something that's so completely different from the life you lead you come up with all these bizarre explanations or simplifications instead yes he's he's simplifying some things 
also because he's trying to make them fit into his worldview. Mm-hmm. So they have to make sense for what he's trying to prove with his writing. So he's trying to to cut down and you know and make it and make it more simple. And sometimes he ends up making it more Greek. Like when he talks about warriors, they're kind of too similar to the Spartans. Mm. Um, so you know he's not um he's not really spot on there. Or when he talks about the priests, um, he says, "Oh, every god has like seven thousand priests, but like uh, they only worship one god, uh, and so you're only specializing one god." True for some. He says there are no female priestesses, which is, so for the Greek conception of what a priestess would be, yes, he is right. Mm. For the Egyptian idea of what a woman may do in a temple, he's wrong, because we know that there are uh, people who are like chantresses for the gods, and they are, you know, they are adoring the god. So there is this one priestess who is like the the god's wife of a moon, who is Mm. basically a high priestess of a moon, and he has a sort of, like, a whole lot of duties that the males cannot fulfill uh, mm. because they're also related to, you know, the fertility of the god and all, all sort of weird things going on with the statue of the god. But he's he's kind of missing some of these. Mm-hmm. And he also divides, and this, this is a big thing, he kind of divides uh, society into um, layers, but he doesn't seem to understand that someone could be many things at once. So mm. like even in many history books, when you see, oh, the, the group of the scribes, but a scribe is almost never only a scribe because many noblemen are general of these, overseer of these, royal scribe. Um, so it's not like a profession, it's more of a title. And he's kind of not getting the sense that many of these titles can overlap in the same person. Mm-hmm. Even among priests, you can have someone who is, you know, the second prophet of these and also working as something else or someone who is, you know, uh, the chief of seers of this god. And then he's also doing something else. And he's he seems to have weird ideas about uh, priestly practices in terms of like um, they they need to abstain from this and that and everything else. It's like, yes, but they're not in service for the whole year. So they need to abstain from sex, um, for instance, like when they're in service, but they're not in service for the whole year. They're doing like a month, three months, everything else. But like many things are lost on him. I wonder what these priests were were telling him. (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea that maybe they were just fucking with him. I love the idea. They did fuck with uh, with Hecateus because he went there. And this is Herodotus telling us. So he's, he's kind of throwing shade. He tells mm-hmm. us that Hecateus of Miletus went there uh, to do ethnography, botany, and everything else, and myths, and cartography, and geography. And he told the Egyptian priests, oh, my, I don't know, sixth-generation ancestors were gods. And the priest opened the door to a room that was full of statues of priests up to, I don't know, the 30th generation. They're like, these were all men, children of men, so you're saying bullshit. Uh, and Hecateus was just like, yeah, that's it, owned and, and left. <laughs> Uh, and this is Herodotus telling us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's not trying to claim that his ancestors were gods, but yeah. he still tells us that gods did walk um, in Egypt at the very beginning of their story, which is 100% Egyptian propaganda. And he's just mm-hmm. eating that up. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's hearing that and he's like, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Totally checks out. <laughs> this place is magical. So mm-hmm. yeah, what other kind of or are there other good examples of stuff that's just straight Egyptian propaganda versus him just misunderstanding everything? <laughs> I mean, yes. So when he starts talking about pharaohs, he has a few... So he changes all the names because he uh, says the names in Greek. So we have to interpret who he's talking about. So he talks about, you know, um, Sesostris, which is Ace and Wazret. Which one? There were several. We don't know. One of them. Mm. Probably the third one because because of what he says. Uh, And then Moeris, which is Amunemhat. And then he changes, and then he's the one who gives us Cheops, uh, Kefren, and Mikarinos mm. for the names of the pyramid builders, of uh, which are like his kind of okay uh, transliterations of like the the phonetic rendition of the names of the pharaohs. Mm-hmm. So that's good. And sometimes you can see the Egyptian propaganda like coming out and slapping you in the face, like he's saying, "Oh, Sesostris uh, conquered." Up to, you know, up to Scythia and then down to Kush and then he went all over the place. Um, and this is like a double layer propaganda because on the one hand, we know that Samwazret III was really big on his own propaganda because he did went to Nubia, he did conquer, and then he built these giant ass fortresses on the border, on the Nile, to prove that that was his territory. And he put up stelae everywhere with him trampling over the enemy. Well, every pharaoh did, but he was like really big on that. And his name was associated with like this, like the myth of this like great warrior, great conqueror. However, he never went past, you know, the northern borders of Egypt. So where did he get that from? And the general idea in the scholarship is that um, the Egyptians kind of made that up to prove that he had been bigger than the Achaemenids, who never conquered mm. Scythia, right? They went right. to uh, try to conquer, and then they never did. And then once Alexander rolled in, and he had actually conquered more, then of course they wanted to claim him as one of the own and the heir to these big pharaohs. So um, he's, you know, he's, he's taking all this propaganda. Like when he talks about uh, Rampsinitus, which is Ramesses, pick your Ramesses because there's like 11 of them building all over Egypt and doing this and doing that and it's like mm, that sounds like Ramesses II who did exactly that um, he was a great PR man uh, so he's he's reading this and also interestingly he's also reading the unfavorable Egyptian propaganda on some of the kings Oh, so he's getting the, the tea and he's dishing it out in Greek So when he talks about Cheops, there's a whole tradition that depicts him as a tyrant, Mm -hmm. uh, as a terrible man. And he absolutely repeats that uh, when he talks about, um, I think it's Mykerinus, and he has like a smaller pyramid. And so, and that like, he he has like a, a favorable reputation in later Egyptian sources. So he says, oh, he built like smaller pyramids because... Um, he had lost his daughter. And so he decided to build, you know, smaller pyramids to, to remember them. Or when he talks about, and, and he gets into one of his favorite topics, which is prostitution. When he talks about uh, Cheops not having enough blocks of limestone for his pyramid. And so he forces his daughter to become a prostitute. And she asks for um, money and limestone blocks for each of, uh, of her customers. And this is like... <laughs> Where where did he get this from, right? Uh, or he says like he tells like um 
a weirdly Greek with Egyptian undertone tales of like a proto-Cinderella uh, of someone who loses a sandal uh, and an eagle grabs it and brings it to Pharaoh and Pharaoh searches the whole land for, you know, this woman's sandal and then he marries her. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's merging together like some very like Egyptian literature tropes and then and then Greek folktales. So like he tells a lot of things that you read them and you're like, this, this is a folktale. This is not propaganda. This is not stuff. So like, um, you know, brothers like uh, betraying each other and killing each other. The tale of the, of the two brothers that are stealing together. One of them is trapped and the other one to not, to not have his brother identified, chops off the brother's head and runs away with it. It's, it's a whole of, it's a whole of weirdness. Uh, he's you know uh, he has like all this information that comes from all sort of you know propaganda and biographies and also like uh some didactic literature that he kind of misinterprets there's one passage in which he says oh um when they uh have banquets they have little miniature coffins with a dead man inside a fake dead man like the, the model of a dead man and like a, a sign that says, remember to enjoy life now because you're going to be like me. <laughs> the, the thought is in line with Egyptian literature because we have plenty of poems that say, live now because when you're dead, you're not coming back, you know, and you're not going to enjoy anything. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they would have little, you know, memento mori coffins at uh, banquets. So he had learned something from the literature and then probably seen something and put two things together that really did not go together. But I love him. <laughs> He's fantastic. I mean, that is morbid as hell. I would love if that was true. <laughs> like, that is just so over the top and, like, dramatic in the best possible way. He, he really has the flair for drama. There's um, another story about a cow. Um, so I think it's, I think it's once again, Mikirinos's, uh, daughter who knows that she has to die and she asks to be put into a, the, this, this basically sarcophagus shaped like a cow and to be brought back out, um, to see the light of the sun once a year. And you're like, wait, what did he see that made him jump to that conclusion? Yeah. Uh, and this is probably one of the, um, of the Osiria uh, festivals of Koyak, which is a festival of, um, how do you say it? Of, like when, when the crops are ready and you just harvest them. The harvest, harvest, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they would take out, you know, a statue of the goddess Hathor in her shape of a cow and bring it out. Mm. Or, you know, uh, or something of the sort. So he's, he has some notions of Egyptian literature, uh, like especially about older kings, more ancient kings. But then he has this tendency to put it together in, in weird ways and mixing in folktale things and Greek moral uh, teachings, which are very different from Egyptian moral teachings. Now I can't get over why he would say Isis is Demeter instead of Hathor. Like, is Hathor better connected to Aphrodite? Uh, yes, um, yeah. And she's also connected to Astarte. Okay. And Ishtar, she's like a very, yeah, she's a heavily uh, fertility-related goddess. And she also appears as a cow, uh, which would make also sense with Demeter because Demeter appears as a Tauropolos. So mm -hmm. she's like on, the, on, on a bull. But then again, 
I mean, Hathor for Aphrodite makes more sense. Although, and this is this is where he really like the so in Egypt there were temples to Aphrodite, especially at the time that he he visits. Uh, we know that there's a big temple to Aphrodite in Naucratis, which is a Greek city in Egypt, mm. in the Delta. And that's where like he really knows what he's talking about. And so they knew Aphrodite, but they did not really identify her with Hathor mm-hmm. in there uh, because the dedications are all in Greek to Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, I, I see where the oh, fertility goddess pipeline goes. But the Isis Demeter is most probably because of the of the underworld situation. Although yeah. Isis like only really deals with the underworld when her husband is chopped to pieces. Yeah, and Demeter only deals with it when she's searching for her daughter, but she doesn't go there. Like she notably doesn't right. go there. So yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> I just I mean, and I guess it all comes down to the very nature of like they can't be equated because they are very different goddesses <laughs> all across the goddesses. board. But it is just so interesting thinking about that because like, because technically Demeter is also a fertility goddess. She's just like a less mm-hmm. traditional, like a less sex, sex fertility goddess and a more like yes. earth fertility goddess. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And he also, to... he also puts like, um like um Isis also as like Selene, as like the mm. moon, which is not entirely correct because uh, the moon is a man. I mean, in, yeah. in Egypt, uh, the, it's it's a moon god and not a moon goddess. And also, which is another thing that really sent Greeks in a loop, um, <laughs> the earth is male and the sky is female. Mm, very different. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this this must have must have looked weird to them. But for the Egyptians, it did make sense because the the f- fertilizer is the man. And so the earth being really fertile clearly is a man. And also sometimes the, the sky goddess is said to give birth to the, the sun god every morning, which is why the sky is red. So they had mm. a good explanation for that. But he's, uh, he's, he's kind, of, kind of missing this. He does get, however, the, the, like the, the good connection he makes is like um, Hephaestus is Ptah of Memphis, which is like spot on. Because Ptah <laughs> is a craftsman. He mm. is the one who makes, well, in one of the many traditions, he makes humans. Mm. Um, and he is, I mean, he's not a blacksmith, but he 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 works things and he's the craftsman god. So that, that one's like, yeah, that one he got right. That was easy. Uh, but, but he's not. <laughs> but he's not the unwanted uh, child of anyone. And he's actually in a somewhat happy marriage with the lion-headed goddess, and their son is a, a lotus flower. So it's mm. a good family. Um, it's a happy family. Uh, <laughs> Very unlike, unlike Hephaestus. Hephaestus, yeah. <laughs> Yes, not a happy yes. family. Oh, I just, <gasps> I, I just find it so interesting the just the ways in which the Egyptian gods are so mm-hmm. different and so unique, and like just the animal nature of all of them too is so different from kind of so many other of the regions i just they're they're generally just so extra fascinating which i'm sure you agree because you study egyptology i I do i i've studied these things like i'm probably like if i had gone there as a you know as a carrion in the fifth century i would have also been very taken aback by the fact that they did worship things oh my god we need to talk about the cats so please i for how how did i forget the cats so (laughs) greeks did not have cats at this point Mm. 
so he he goes um and he sees these 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 weird animals that are worshipped and he gets rightfully the sense that egyptians were bonkers about them so he tries to um he tries to explain how the cats behave he kind of fails and then <laughs> and then he says that when there's a great fire the cats jump into the fire uh, and the egyptians jump into the fire after the cats because they are so valuable not untrue <laughs> <laughs> they would probably jump into the fire for their cats. However, I don't think cats would jump in. <laughs> yeah, seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. Like they would probably just cause the fire and then run, you know, and then leg it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he gets it that he's fascinated by these animals, which I mean, they're they're very important for the Egyptians because they eat the rats, uh, mm. which were an absolute plague when you have grain, when your whole economy is based on grain. Um, right. Or when you have poisonous snakes, or like snakes that are, you know, uh, they're not deadly, but like they're really unpleasant. You want these animals to be to be on your on your good side, um, and they've had them for like ages. And Herodotus is like absolutely fascinated by these people's love for for the cats. And then he also talks about other animals uh, they're like that they use to fight the to fight snakes and and rats. He talks about ichneumons, which are kind of mon- mongoose. I think they're the kind of mongoose, but sometimes, and this this sends me in a rage, in um on museum, uh in museum uh labels or like in books, just like, oh, and these are river otters. And like, no, they're not otters. They're these are these are mongoose. Uh interesting. I don't know are, anything about mongoose, but they are um think Timon, but like oh. but like Egyptian. Um okay. and like slightly chunkier. Um <laughs> and then they're like other I think ichneumons are of the hmm. Like, yeah, they're, they're called Egyptian mongoose, and they're like, they really don't look like otters. But in art, unfortunately, they kind of look like river otters. Mm. Um, and some of them have, like, the solar disk on them and everything else. And he's he's fascinated by all these all these weird animals. He's absolutely taken with the fact that they worship them, um, mm-hmm. that they worship the crocodiles. And sometimes they dress them up and spoil them. They wear, I mean... Well, explain. <laughs> how do you dress up a crocodile? Well, yes. <laughs> um, so in certain uh, cities, uh, there was a cult of the crocodile god Sobek. And we are told that they would have like, um, let's say, sacred crocodiles that they would feed. Uh, probably in like um, canals or like basins co- um, linked to the temples or sacred enclosures. Some crocodile mummies have holes drilled where the ears in theory should be if you were looking mm. at a at a human face and so people have hypothesized that maybe they were putting earrings on the crocodiles now <laughs> did the crocodiles like that i find that hard to believe would a crocodile let you <laughs> put earrings on them i also find it hard to believe um <laughs> but <laughs> you know maybe maybe but they were spoiling them and feeding them, which is something they did. And in other in other um, in other nomoi, they had you know sacred rams and or you know other sacred animals. And he is absolutely fascinated by this. The word that he uses to describe most of Egypt is Tsalma, which is the I think is the Doric version of Tsalma, which is like a wonder. He's no. <laughs> all in for it. It's like this place has most wonders than any other places place on earth. And he's also ready to believe some things that are not true, but they are propaganda about like how things are built. So he sees Lake Moeris and somehow he understands, and we don't know if they tell him if he understands that that was a man-made lake that a pharaoh mm. had made. 
it's a giant lake. It's it's not man-made. But he's like, yes, totally. They totally did this. It's like 100%. I believe that. I'm like, I buy into that. So, you know, he's um, he's buying this. And then um, he talks about the labyrinth. And you're like, the, the what? The what? And he's like, yes, there's a labyrinth. And there's, you know, and there's a pyramid on top of the labyrinth and everything else. And then when you look at it from an Egyptian archaeology perspective, you realize what it is. It's not a labyrinth. It's a tomb. Yeah. It's a big mortuary temple for the worship of um, Amenemhat III in the Fayum. And it has many rooms and many corridors and many other things. And then there's a pyramid, like, not on top. It's like a little forward. <laughs> but to someone who came with ideas, mm-hmm. labyrinth ideas, that would have looked like a labyrinth. So he's, like, absolutely making a mess out of things. He's describing, describing some things that exist. But the how and why, he gets kind of wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for the pyramids. Or, you know, the um, uh, when he says how they were built, when he talks about um, other buildings, he's using Greek construction techniques and ascribing them to each other. says, oh, they used cranes. And we're like, no, they did not have cranes when they were building the pyramids. Like, oh, they only used iron tools. And they're like, ah, also wrong. They only had copper at the time. It works. It works. <laughs> experimental archaeology has proven that yes you can cut granite with copper and sand and a lot of patience mm-hmm. but they had patience and time so he's um you know he's 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 trying he's trying his best um and then he's and then when finally he talks about Saitic egypt so from um 664 ish uh onwards then he's actually spot on with the with the history right. and whatever happens then he's like talking about something that really happened. Anything before that, questionable. And he also talks, and this is the, the funniest cross reference that we have. He talks about the famous um, heterai, or if you prefer prostitutes, of Nocratis. Mm. And he mentions one of them called Rodopis, so um, Rosy Cheeks, who was so rich and so famous that commissioned golden, giant golden skewers to be put in Delphi on her name. And he also tells us that this is the same courtesan that Sappho's brother had freed and spent all of his money on. And we have the fragment of Sappho insulting Aphrodite and asking her to bring back his, her brother because he's squandering all his money on a prostitute from Nocratis. So, <laughs> oh, that's so fun. <laughs> so he's, he's getting the ancient tea. Um, yeah. Kind of getting it right. It's possible <laughs> that someone from Nocratis dedicated the skewers, but then he also adds that she was freed, I think, along like Azopus, who was also enslaved. And that's like totally bonkers. That's like, not really. That's like another tradition that he, he we've seen. And so he he takes something that is like that that happened, which is what Sappho tells that happened, and then he puts it on top of something that was real, which is that Nocratis being a harbor had a lot of prostitutes, and then he adds donations to Delphi, which is a it's a it's a it's a trope in literature, right? We uh, we're told I don't remember who it is that um, Phryne, the famous um, Athenian mm. heteroi, wanted uh, a statue of hers in uh in delphi and she also offered to reconstruct the walls of thebes if the thebans had put the sign saying oh alexander destroyed it and you know and franny rebuilt it and they were like no thank you 
So that would have been <laughs> like, cool. Fine. We'll, we'll pass on that, ma'am. But you know, but he's he's just mishmashing together all these various informations. Uh, and his his portrayal of Egypt is fantastic and fabulous. But I I I would love to go back in time and be like a fly on the wall and see what the priests were thinking and saying. Yes. <laughs> Oh, God, I feel that way about so many different things, but this might be a new one for sure. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, just the way these misinterpretations happen and what kind of was going on in people's minds and what were they saying and what were they already like had stuck in their head that they couldn't get rid of. So it just like it reinforced all their ideas or, oh, man, especially like I think (laughs) this just makes me think that that Odyssey really, really does Herodotus quite well because he's just so mm-hmm. like it, I mean he's always asking questions but he's also just kind of like there sort of existing and being slightly obnoxious but in a fun way you know kind of throughout <laughs> oh yeah I mean I'm sure like re- I mean I'm sure I don't know I, I'm not that old but like maybe real life Herodotus <laughs> was like that um yeah. you know he, he might have been chill dude and like I mean it takes like a lot of intellectual curiosity and like also a good dose of guts to just travel to Egypt at that point and just, you know, try and ask. Um, he probably didn't travel through the whole of it because he omits what is arguably like one of the biggest cities, which is Thebes. He talks about Thebes because he knows about Homer. Mm. But from the things that he omits, um, it's clear that he doesn't go there because like some of the biggest festivals in the Egyptian year where in tips like the festival of opeth and like the beautiful festival of the valley which is a great festival of sex drugs rock and roll and the dead Amazing. which takes place down there and he probably wasn't there for the whole year because he says oh it never rains in here we know no it, it it did rain but he's probably not there for the time but i you know i'd like to believe that he went and he was just yeah trying to learn the things and saying fascinating and looking at things and yeah obnoxiously poking the priests <laughs> and asking them but do you know about this tradition and they were like yeah sure 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 just go away yeah i'll say whatever yeah, yeah, you want please yeah please we, yeah. we need to worship just just go away <laughs> just leave us alone it's interesting does he make like a lot of the connections between like greek and and egyptian thebes because i would think that if you're trying to like make these explicitly kind of greek connections alongside egypt then thebes is a really good example because i actually recently found myself i've clearly like not been clear enough with my listeners because i had a listener ask me saying they'd heard of thebes in egypt and was that wrong? Were they talking about the G- Greek one? And I was like, oh, God, no, no, no. The Egyptian themes was way more important than the Greek one. Sorry if I've ever suggested otherwise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, it's well, just so interesting because the, they have the two. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't go there. He knows mm-hmm. about it. Um, right. And probably like the name Thebes is his version of one of the names of Luxor, which is Ta'ipet, which is the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the temple. Uh, there are other interpretations, but this one, prop. I mean, it, it makes sense. Um, but he doesn't talk about it a lot because he he stops in like Middle Egypt. He doesn't go in Upper Egypt, right? Um, and there's already a lot to do. And also, his main interest in like the Homeric connection is with the Delta because of Helen, right? And um, and Menelaus and Paris. He knows more or less where Egypt ends. And like how far down it is, 
but he doesn't he doesn't even go there unfortunately it would have been cool yeah. if he had seen Thieves. he would have been impressed with yeah. Thieves. Uh, and i mean god knows what he would have understood but <laughs> the theban theology is is complicated um man fight theology is also complicated also pet peeve he doesn't learn or doesn't talk about one of the big uh, creation myths which is absolutely crazy which is the one of the great honker so at the beginning there is the waters of the noon the waters of the nothing and then an egg comes out and out of the egg comes the great honker which is a goose which is the sun god who honks everything into existence <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it, there is a beautiful beautiful figuring of these among Tutankhamun's um, grave goods. And it's amazing. I'm going to send it. I'm going to tweet it at you because Please. it's fantastic. The Great Honker. I mean, if they had told me, told him, his mind would have exploded. In yeah, Hong's, mine, mine basically did. <laughs> so that just makes me think too then. So the, the Egyptian name for Egyptian Thebes, that's a Greek name that we use now. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. Which yeah, the Egyptian names for Thebes were Waset. Ah. So which is which is why we're like kind of confused where he got Thebes from. Mm-hmm. Because the Egyptians did not call it Thebes. But yeah. then if you think of like Ta'ipet, which is kind of close, but there's also the, the question about the name Egypt, right? Right. So where where did he get that from? And this is this is something that I learned in high school first and then learned again because I had forgot about it. Probably he gets like the name Egypt, which <clears throat> oh, this is my throat telling me to stop. Um, <laughs> comes from so in 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 Greek is like Aegyptos, mm-hmm. but and it's probably coming from the Egyptian uh, name for the Temple of Time, Memphis, which is now I don't want to mispronounce it, so I'm gonna <laughs> look up the transliteration uh, because you know otherwise the UCL is gonna revoke my. <laughs> <laughs> My degree is Hutkapta. So hmm. from Tahutkapta to Aegyptos, if it was not pronounced how I pronounced it, but it was mm-hmm. like slightly more aspirated and everything, chances are that the name Egypt comes from there. Mm-hmm. So And then they wrote it into also, their mythology. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we're, I-O. We're just, <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're just regurgitating <laughs> Egyptian propaganda and Greek propaganda. Yeah. I love that bit of Greek propaganda, though. I could just keep talking about it because it's just so clearly an example of them being like, these guys are really cool. We want to be cool like them. How can we write it into our origin mythology that we are cool like the Egyptians? <laughs> This is like the OG self-insert fan fiction. Yeah, they're retconning Egyptian history to yeah. just make the Greeks seem so much more cool. Uh, yeah, it's just that's right. Yeah, wonderful. these are these are the same gods, and then I don't think it's him. I think it's Diodorus that says, "Oh, but actually, the Egyptians worship animals because the Greek gods ran away and turned into animals and ran to Egypt, and <laughs> so the Egyptians saw them and they were like, yes, we will worship these weird gods.' There are in shape of animals, but actually those are the Greek gods. So it turns oh it God. on its head. That's amazing. Yeah, that's even more <laughs> ridiculous. Like just really bending over backwards to make this fit your narrative. Oh yeah, yeah. He's uh yeah, it's it's 
it's complicated. And the fact that some of the animals are like really not Greek makes it even funnier because like, oh, and Artemis became a cat. And like, you didn't have cats until like a hundred <laughs> years ago. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, yeah. And like crocodiles and hippos, like those are not mm-hmm. in Greece. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, he also, uh, Herodotus also talks about bears, which is, which is somewhat of a, of a weird thing. We know there were bears in the Near East, but not wild bears in Egypt. So maybe he was told, maybe he saw them, our representations, but weird, weird. But he must have had, he must have had a ball with all these weird animals. He doesn't talk about giraffes. (gasps) That's unfortunate. Alas. Well, giraffes were also imported, so maybe they were not importing Mm. them. I've been learning modern Greek, and one of my favorite things to learn was that the word for Greek, or for giraffe, is just spotted camel. (laughs) <laughs> it's camelopardus in latin camelipardali in, yeah, in yes. modern greek yeah <laughs> spotted yes. camel and you're like okay i can see where you got this you saw I, camels I first yeah, yeah you're like i'm familiar with camels and then you see this big one sure does it have a super long neck yes maybe it's just freakish but it sure yeah. does look like a spotted camel <laughs> it does well i mean the the name obelisk is like a big uh, a big skewer and you're like yeah yeah i is can that see that <laughs> Yeah, yes, yeah. that is what, it, and like, and, and crocodile is, is a big lizard, you know, like, that, that works, that works, a, leopard a big murderous is, lizards. Leopard is yeah. spotted lion. Like, yeah, that's true, that's yeah. true. <laughs> and then there's the mystery of the hippo, so, yeah, who knows? River horse <laughs> that doesn't remotely resemble a river horse in any <sighs> discernible it's, way. It's not a horse, it doesn't have hooves, it doesn't have a mate, it doesn't it just, have hair it's just it's got the fangs but like they're not really but even, I mean, they're, they're like they're, they're blunt yeah they're not yeah they don't even really look like fangs in the same way you know like they look much they look dangerous but they don't look like sharp yeah, they, fangs they are dangerous exactly yeah. those things are terrifying much yeah like unlike horses it's just so exactly. i love it exactly. yeah and i just well, it's gotta be the only <laughs> english word that's like a direct greek word too of like this is direct two Greek words put together and then put into English. Because I think that's, that's pretty rare that it doesn't even get adapted much. It's wonderful. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, talk about <sighs> etymology forever. Um, this has been so much fun. Thank you for telling me everything <laughs> about Herodotus in Egypt and all of his <laughs> wild and wacky things. Like, I was slowly transitioning into the, the podcast into like, what are the weirdest things from the ancient world? What are the most bizarre examples we have? Like, Alcestis started today on the podcast, a series on Alcestis. Oh, I can't wait. Is, oh my God, I had so much fun. I didn't know what it was when I started. I was just like, it's a Euripidean tragedy. And then my, I'm reading it and I'm like, no, it's not. What no, it's fuck? not. <laughs> what is this? What is this? Also, Admetus sucks. Anyways. Um, oh my God, Admetus sucks. Yeah, no. And I, uh, I'm soon on the podcast, I'll be reading. Uh, what else was I doing? Oh, I'm just doing um, the Batrachomyomachia yes. is coming <laughs> next month. And then after that, I'm just doing a straight reading of Lucian's True History. Yes. <laughs> so I'm just really like, I'm having a great time on like, what is the batshit stuff from the ancient world? And let me share it with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so i feel like herodotus things. fits really well in with this yes yes uh so much so much for his attempts to be a historian well he tries yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. he made a valiant attempt i mean it was a different time it would have been very hard to do much better than he does like it would have been difficult it would have also been very hard to try and parse the egyptian propaganda because they don't write down anything else 
So yeah. they, they just cancel kings and, you know, conveniently forget uh, defeats or turn draws into victories. I'm looking at you, Ramesses II. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, his his task was monumental. Um, yeah. But yeah, apart from the hippo, you know, he kind of <laughs> got some things. <laughs> I mean, he I just fun along him. the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, surely. Surely. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's so wonderful. Well, um, I will let your throat have a rest and let Thank you go. You. But <laughs> why don't you tell my listeners like where they can find more or follow you if you want or watch your streams and all that fun stuff? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, and I, I hope that like my giant ramble uh, discussion about something that is equally as rambling made sense. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely my favorite thing is just to get people rambling because i think it's just so much fun like at least it's fun for me and my listeners never complain so i'm just assuming everyone loves it because it's that's truly that's good wonderful. and uh, that's very easy to get me rambling so um i can be <laughs> i can be found i can be spotted in my natural habitat um on twitter <laughs> at amit with an underscore so a m m i t underscore yes that is the name of the eater of souls uh, in ancient egypt yes mm. that is also the name of spoiler alert the villain in moon knight um so my girl is getting she's getting a bad rap Uh, Mm. she has no agency anyways um (laughs) and i stream for uh save ancient studies alliance uh sasa on twitch every friday at 2 p.m uh eastern time and that is so twitch.tv slash save ancient studies we are doing an archaeo gaming series. Uh, right now, we are streaming Uncharted 4 with a bunch of archaeologists. The next game we are going to stream is going to be Heaven's Fault, which is a delightful game uh, that has to do with Egypt and sci-fi and deciphering things. And then for the next installment, I think after the fall, we have to start Tomb Raider because it is oh. necessary. <laughs> like Archeo Gaming 101. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I think that is everywhere I am. Uh. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Twitch stuff is so fun. I've never, like, because I've just never been in that world, like, I, I thought I would have trouble watching somebody else play a game without me playing. So my first experience with any of it was streaming with you and just watching. <laughs> and then I was like, no, wait, this is fun. Because particularly because I love that game so much. But... Like, yeah, I can see the appeal for sure of like you, you should start your own these games. Start your own series and also come back as a guest. We will be I delighted will to have you. Very, again. very happy to come back as a guest. <laughs> Whether I figure out the technology and like give up the fact that Odyssey is my like I eat an edible and shut down and play Odyssey at night. I don't like, <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't do it the same way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, maybe one day. But I'll definitely come back as a guest. Oh yeah. We have um, things planned for Mother's Day. We have Oedipus dating simulation for Mother's oh my Day. God. Oh, that's you exciting. have no idea. Oh my you god, you have no idea. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna be in Greece. I'm gonna try to watch that from over there. <laughs> well, truly, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was very, very fun. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Less for my throat, but that's my problem. <laughs> Uh, thank you all for listening. This was so fun. Plus, you've got some bonus insight into what is coming up on the podcast. 
coming soon, that is. I thought about cutting out those bits where I kind of give it all away, but honestly, if you want to look into these sources, like what exactly the works are that I just told Kate about at the end of this, I think you'll only get more excited for future episodes. I've been preparing so many episodes in advance so that I could be off on my trip, but let me tell you, I did not half-ass them. My gods. There is some incredibly fun and funny stuff coming up. The weirdest bits from the ancient world. All incoming. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She honestly handles so much, particularly while I'm away. Just a true lifesaver and always willing to help out with more. I absolutely love her. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. Plus, as I've been saying, we have an intern this month. Have I actually worked with her by the time I've recorded this? No, unfortunately, she doesn't start until I'm already in Europe. Such is life. Grace Roby, I am sure she's going to be so helpful. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. 
find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.